Time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, February 13th. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, the Madison School Board delayed their decision in the search for the district's next superintendent. Wisconsin Elections Administrators say their infrastructure needs more support. A local baker and business owner brings a Polish tradition to Madison for Mardi Gras. And in the second half, we learn the latest news from UW-Madison campus, talk with a local group that says yes in my backyard, and explore learning opportunities in wildlife rehabilitation. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature approved new legislative district maps drawn by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The move is aimed to avoid liberal-leaning state Supreme Court justices from approving different redistricting maps that could be even worse for Republicans. The state Senate and Assembly passed these maps in quick succession this afternoon, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The votes were mostly along party lines, with Republicans saying they were conceding defeat and Democrats expressing fears that they were being deceived. Evers vetoed a previous version of his maps that were passed by lawmakers with changes to protect a handful of Republican incumbents, but he said he would sign these maps into law if the legislature passed them without those changes. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled the current Republican-drawn maps unconstitutional late last year. Those district lines are widely regarded as some of the most gerrymandered in the nation. If the legislature and governor could not agree on the new maps, the court ruled that it would step in. Top Democrats questioned whether passing Evers' maps today was just a prelude to a future challenge in federal court. If signed into law, the new maps would be in effect for the November 2024 elections. Meanwhile, at the state capitol, Republican lawmakers are taking another crack at passing a large tax cut this session. The assembly was set to vote today on a series of bills that add up to about $2 billion in tax cuts, reports the Associated Press. Republican leaders in the Senate also support the plan, but it's unclear if Democratic Governor Tony Evers would sign or veto any of them. Evers vetoed a bundled package of similar bills in November and scrapped an income tax bracket change that Republicans added to the most recent state budget. He said those changes don't do enough to help middle-class taxpayers. This newest tax plan is made up of several individual bills, including changes to the state's tax brackets. Republican backers said they're hopeful the governor would approve at least some individual bills. Wisconsin is once again dead last when it comes to state arts funding. That's according to an annual survey from a National Association of Public Arts Agencies, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The state has lagged near the back of the pack for several years, and 2023 was the second year in a row that it ranked 50th. Wisconsin provides about 18 cents per resident in state money to arts organizations, according to the report. By comparison, Minnesota spends $9.67 per resident, and Illinois spends $5.11. Advocates argue public art programming is not only culturally important, but has direct economic benefits for communities by attracting visitors. A hovercraft accident on a frozen lake has left three Beaver Dam firefighters injured, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The crash occurred last night during an ice rescue training exercise on Beaver Dam Lake. All three firefighters were taken to the hospital and two have been released. The third had more serious injuries but is in stable condition. 
The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is investigating the incident. UW Health and Unity Point Health Meritor have announced plans to open a rehabilitation hospital in Fitchburg, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The two providers have operated a similar facility on Madison's Far East Side since 2015. When it opened, it was the first dedicated rehab hospital in the area, treating patients recovering from debilitating illnesses and injuries. The new hospital is set to be completed in 2026. It will provide nursing and physical, occupational, and speech therapy for patients recovering from conditions like strokes, neurological disease, and brain or spinal cord injuries. An Alabama-based for-profit company opened a separate rehab facility in Fitchburg late last year. Madison is facing tough choices as a result of a projected $27 million budget deficit, challenging city leaders on how to continue current services as the city grows. The Madison Common Council will get a presentation about the projected deficit for the next fiscal year at its meeting tonight. City officials say there has been a shortfall of some degree every year for the last 14 years. There are limited options for Madison to raise more revenue, thanks largely to restrictions imposed on municipalities by the state legislature. Madison drew the short end of the stick when it came time for state lawmakers to dole out funding last year via shared revenue. That's the money collected by the state and distributed back to municipalities come budget time. Madison got one of the lowest per capita increases in state aid last budget cycle. Meanwhile, the city's debt levels are rising, according to a report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonprofit research group. Paying off debts could reach one-fifth of the city's general spending by 2030. You can watch the presentation at tonight's 6.30 meeting. Alders are set to discuss the deficit in four weeks at their March 5th meeting. The Madison School Board's plan to transition the entire district to renewable energy by 2040 will come with a hefty price tag. Current estimates put the cost of renovations and upgrades to meet that goal at about $1 billion, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. During a board meeting yesterday, some members questioned the feasibility of the plan and urged extending the deadline or pursuing alternative sustainability goals. The 2040 goal was adopted as part of a non-binding resolution in 2019. District officials say funding for the upgrades would come from regular referendums as well as fundraising and grants. Board members are expected to make a final decision on the future of the plan next month. We'll have more updates about Madison School Board business later in the show. After persevering through a pandemic, a downtown restaurant, ramen restaurant, is set to close later this month. Morris Ramen, located near the Capitol Square on Kane Street, has been open for seven years. It'll serve up its last dishes two Saturdays from now on February 24th. In an announcement shared this morning, its owners characterized the decision as heartbreaking. They added that the original dream of Morris had faded and noted they were coming to terms with a couple of years that have been, quote, extraordinarily taxing. The restaurant is owned by Matt Morris, Francesca Hahn, and Shinji Muramoto. Morris and Muramoto worked together at Restaurant Muramoto, while Hahn was the executive chef at 43 North, reports the Cap Times. Hahn is now a state lawmaker and frequently advocates for issues involved in food and the service industry. Those were tonight's headlines, and now on to today's top stories. The Madison Metropolitan School District's board was scheduled to announce a new superintendent at the end of this month, but now they're delaying their announcement to early March. 
School Board President Nichelle Nichols shared an update earlier this afternoon, and WORT reporter Lila Grubb was there. According to MMSD School Board President Nichelle Nichols, they delayed announcing their decision in order to discuss their conditions with the candidate they select. She says they'll use the extra days, from late February to early March, to ensure the new superintendent prioritizes the students and the district's stability. We're still not where we want to be, and so I think we're also looking for a superintendent who has a clear and compelling vision for what's right for our students and and what it's going to take for us to get there. This comes almost two weeks after an article from Isthmus newspaper revealed more details about candidate Mohamed Chaudhary's past. Namely, Chaudhary has previously fielded allegations of creating a toxic work environment while serving as superintendent for Maryland State Department of Education. Isthmus newspaper cited a Washington Post investigation featuring interviews with more than 50 of Chaudhary's current and former colleagues. The interviewees described incidents where Chaudhary drove his colleagues to tears and an overall culture that alienated Chaudhary's own hand-picked staff. Members of the Maryland Department of Education allegedly had concerns about his leadership style and ability to communicate. Monica Santana Rosen is the CEO of the Alma Advisory Group, the consulting firm hired to assist MMSD in the superintendent hiring process. She says that the district wants to understand the candidate's accomplishments as a whole rather than focusing on one fragment of their career. She also says that they want to give the candidates a chance to show that they've reflected and grown from these experiences. So at the end of the day, you have to take the whole picture into consideration. And the three finalists that we had all met the bar and were all at a place where the board said we want our community to get to meet them and tell us what they think. Another candidate, Yvonne Stokes, is the former superintendent for the Hamilton Southeastern School District in Indiana. While superintendent in Indiana, she attempted to promote diversity and inclusion in the district, but Stokes faced pushback from the community and eventually stepped down from the role. The third candidate for superintendent, Madison native Joe Gothard, has not faced any community backlash. Nichelle Nichols says the school board will be deliberating later tonight and still has a lot of community feedback to assess. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Lila Grubb. As the 2024 election season takes shape, election administrators remain confident in their ability to oversee a safe and transparent voting process. But they say support for election infrastructure is woefully lagging. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story. Americans are preparing to vote this year in what's described as a high-stakes presidential election. But those who oversee the voting process, including a Wisconsin official, say lack of federal support is straining their operations. The city of Madison has been recognized by policy experts for holding safe and secure elections during the pandemic. But City Clerk Maribeth Witzel-Beal says budget constraints can make it a difficult balancing act. She says there's greater interest in absentee ballots requiring more manpower and building space to process them. However, there's a key problem. The funding that we receive from the state and from the federal government hasn't increased to accommodate any of that. She says that puts more pressure on property taxes. Meanwhile, a bipartisan coalition of state and local election officials estimates that offices around the country need at least $53 billion over a decade to repair and modernize election infrastructure. There are specific requests in the current federal budget debate, but the House and Senate are at odds over how much to provide. Sun Wu Oh, with the progressive nonprofit group Stand Up America, says what's concerning is that whatever funding is set aside in the short term would still fall short of election officials' requests. 
She says policymakers need to understand how pressing this matter is. We've been working to try to get more consistent and predictable funding from Congress to help support local administrators to get the resources they need and help modernize the election infrastructure that's super outdated in most of the jurisdictions. Oh, it says when voting machines need to be updated or replaced, there are delays and snags in the vote counting process. But she stresses that doesn't mean election integrity is being compromised. In a national poll, 7 in 10 Americans said they believe the federal government should be just as responsible, if not more so, for election funding than local municipalities and states. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Today is Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, and starting tomorrow, those who observe the 40 days of Lent may be cutting certain foods out of their diet. That means today is a day for indulgence. One local cafe, the Ugly Apple, marked the holiday with a traditional Polish dessert that features all of the yummiest ingredients. Earlier today, the Ugly Apple's owner and chef, Laurel Burleson, shared with WRT News producer Faye Parks about the history and making of punchki between like a super rich little chocolate truffle and like a king-size Hershey bar. So like if you think of like a jelly donut as like a king-size Hershey bar, it's maybe big and super sweet, has kind of a gel filling potentially. And these are a little bit smaller and they're super rich and it's kind of a tangy dough that's kind of light and fluffy on the inside. And then the filling inside is more like a jam or like a rich custard. So it has bits of fruit you can recognize and being totally handmade, I feel like you can really kind of taste the care and time that goes into them, especially with that kind of longer fermentation time gives it like a little bit of tanginess. So it's not just a sugar bomb. There's like a lot of complex flavors going on with them. That's Laurel Burleson, chef and owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe. I went to the cafe this afternoon after trying one of their punchki, a Polish dessert that's traditionally prepared to celebrate Fat Tuesday. The Ugly Apple is inside the Dane County Courthouse, which means you have to go through a security check and a metal detector before making your way downstairs. We're located in the lower level of the Dane County Courthouse, which is a little bit of a strange, maybe, location, but it's been great. Down here, we've been here a little over a year and we are a cafe primarily. So breakfast and lunch, some delicious hot items. We also do pastries in house like the punchki for today and coffee, just drip coffee and also espresso drinks, lattes, mochas, things like that too. It sounds like you guys get some pretty good business here. You said you were busy before I came in and you're kind of winding down now, is that right? Yeah, so most of our business comes from people who work in the building or are here for jury duty or have other courthouse business, but we're open to the public. And so today was kind of a good opportunity too for people to uh, check us out who haven't been down here before. And so I'm here today because uh, you are celebrating Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you guys do to kind of mark the holiday? For me growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, Mardi Gras meant punchki, which is a Polish tradition. It's a specifically rich donut, essentially, that for me at least was only on Mardi Gras. And then now talking to some other kind of Polish people or people who have been to Poland, it's, it's a little bit like during the what maybe in New Orleans would be like the Mardi Gras season, like between Epiphany and Fat Tuesday, which is today, leading into Lent. 
And from my perspective, again, as a child, it just meant that I got these amazing treats one day a year that my mom would go pick up at the bakery in town. And so I wanted to keep that alive. After moving to Madison about 10 years ago, I realized that punchki wasn't as much of a, a popular tradition in Madison as it is in, in the suburbs of Chicago or in Chicago. And I've heard it's a bigger tradition in Milwaukee and some other parts of the state, but not really around here. So I wanted to continue that tradition selfishly for myself so that I could have the tree, but then also to share it with more people and realize that there was a Polish community in Madison that has been kind of asking for it over the years. And so this year we really swung for the fences and went big on it. So when you say went big, how many did you make? About 1,200 punchki, which before this, I think my record was about 600. And so, yeah, we, we just kind of went for broke and decided to see how many we could do. And it went really smoothly, actually. It was, it was great. But we started very, very, very early in the morning today. Yes. So you've had a long day then. About when did you get baker's hours, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I usually start work here around 5, but I was here at 3.30 today, and my business partner did the midnight shift. So he arrived at midnight. He has since gone home, fortunately, but he did about a 12-hour day. And then, uh, yeah, I got here about 3.30. We had some other staff come at 4 and then uh, 6 to kind of start packing and getting everything ready for our pre-orders. So I'm curious, too, how difficult of a pastry is it to make? What's the process behind that? It's a little bit more complicated than a regular donut. Part of the tradition is to use up all the things you have in the house that you don't want tempting you during Lent. So for a, a fried dough, it has butter and sugar and milk and eggs and egg yolks. And then we let it proof a few times and then cut it and let it sit for kind of a longer ferment. Like if you're thinking kind of in the realm of like sourdough, it's not a sourdough but just to give it some time to rest and build flavor. And so you have to be patient, but it's worth it. And uh, all the mixing and everything that goes into it, it's super rich dough, and then they're fried, deep fried, and then filled with custard or jam that I make also. So in that way, it was like over the weekend making vats of jam and uh, gallons of custard and having it all ready to go for today. So it sounds like it was all handmade. Everything was from scratch that you made. Yeah, that's correct. I I didn't dry the dry plums. Um, I bought those. But everything else, all the other fruits that we used, the strawberries, raspberries, currants, and apples were all local. And they were things that I got kind of through the season last year and preserved. And uh, the apples actually were still kind of wintered over from the end of the apple season because apples are amazing. <laughs> and uh, so we processed those and, and had everything ready to go. And so I know we got a nice box of them at WORT, sort of a little bit like roulette. You don't really know what filling you're going to get, and that's part of the fun. Do you have a particular favorite, or is there one that's like especially traditional? So the ones that are traditional are the, well, I called them brandied dry plum. Dried plums are prunes. I feel like Americans don't like the word prune, and I reconstituted them with some brandy and apple cider, and so it's, I thought brandied dry plum sounded maybe more appealing but those are the most traditional ones I do. There's also a rose filling that's traditional that I have not tried, but I've heard from a few people. So maybe next year I will dig into the traditional rose filling and kind of what that looks like and, and maybe try for that one. It's hard for me to choose a favorite. I kind of like them all. I feel like through the course of like making the fillings to the last few days and like sampling little bits here and there, I kept being like, man, that's good. 
it seems weird to say that about something you make yourself, but man, that's good. Um, this year, the apple ones turned out really nice. When I was a kid, the strawberry ones were my favorite. The Both of the custards turned out really nice this year, too. So yeah, I don't know. That's It's tough to choose. It's tough to choose. So you mentioned that there was a dearth of this dessert when initially you would come to Madison. Um, it sounds like it was something that was in high demand in the Polish community here. What kind of response have you gotten from folks who aren't Polish or have never had them before? I've gotten a really good response. We've been testing out the recipes and things for the last couple weeks here just in the courthouse for our regulars. And there were a lot of people who were like, oh, what? what is this thing? Because the word to in Polish does not look like how it sounds. So like, what is this thing? What are these treats? What are you doing? What do you have? And I would kind of explain it to people and they would try them and, and I got a, a lot of really good feedback from them. So I think it's it's a treat for anyone. You don't have to observe Lent or be Polish. You can, anyone can enjoy a punchki. And it sounds like there's sort of uh, like a dessert treat, sort of like something that you eat as sort of like a last thing before you're fasting or moving away from certain foods. Would you recommend it more as like a breakfast item or a dessert? And then what would you serve it with? Oh, either. I think, I mean, in my memory, it was always like a breakfast treat, but they definitely are rich enough to be a dessert for sure. And then a, a cup of coffee, I think, would be perfect. If you don't like coffee, then, hmm. You know, here in Wisconsin, I always go for milk. That yeah, might be good to you. Yeah, it could just be a glass of milk. I think that would be especially delicious maybe with a chocolate one. You mentioned too, I think you have some leftover that people can come pick up if they want to continue eating them. They're not necessarily observing Lent. So if they want to come in tomorrow, is that accurate? Probably not tomorrow, but if, you, if you're not observing Lent and you missed out on today, on Saturday, I'll have some for pre-order pickup at Pasture and Plenty. And those are four packs with a bourbon vanilla bean custard, dark chocolate custard, the brandy dry plum, and the raspberry currant, and those are kind of preset. And on Sunday, I'll be at the Femstival at Garver Feed Mill. I think it's from 11 to four. The information's online for that too, but then I'll have kind of an assortment, whatever I have left, fillings-wise, with some punchki to sell there too. Is there anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? Well, we're open down here Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 1.30 the grill is usually closes down around 1 30 and then we close the gates at 2. We're open to the public and we do tons of fresh stuff for breakfast and lunch and try to do some things that are fun and have a special every day and switch it up and if people aren't familiar with the ugly apple in general I started seven years ago trying to utilize farmers overstock and seconds kind of any way I can first with my food cart and then now in the cafe and so we try to keep that ethos alive of of buying as much as we can from local farmers and as much as we can seconds or things that would go to waste and then trying to give them new life. That was Laurel Burleson, chef and owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe in the Dane County Courthouse. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Cardinal Call is a weekly segment featuring news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper at UW-Madison. 
This week, host Oliver Gerhars talk, talks with the Daily Cardinals college news editor Noe Goldhaber and reporter Kayla Dembeck about Lily's Classic, a yearly fundraiser hosted by the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, which has been canceled. Welcome to Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of UW-Madison campus news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your host, Oliver Gearhurst. As of the day of recording, February 9th, Lily's Classic, the annual boot hockey tournament organized by the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, was not going to be canceled in spite of thin ice on Lake Mendota. However, as of February 11th, the event has been canceled due to the warm weather. Today, we're joined by the Daily Cardinal's college news editor, Noe Goldhaber, and reporter Kayla Dembek to discuss the event and its potential hazards. Noe, Kayla, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us, Oliver. What is Lily's Classic? Lily's Classic is a hockey tournament fundraiser put on by the frat SAE Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And like at its core, it's supposed to be a fundraiser for um, Lily's Epilepsy Fund, which supports epilepsy research at the university. So when in the year does Lily's Classic typically take place? Lily's Classic always takes place in February, and it's usually either like the weekend before or the weekend after the Winter Carnival takes place. All right, so this isn't any later or earlier than typical, really. Well, last year it was on February 18th. This year it's on February 17th. So I think as long as I've been here and been aware of it, it's been around the same weekend in February. This is pretty normal time. As I did some digging on Facebook when I was trying to find dates and times and just more information about the event, it was, it's interesting that in the last nine years, this is the latest that Lily's has taken place. And in 2015 and 2016, it took place right in the beginning of February, so like February 7th and February 6th. What is boot hockey? So boot hockey is basically where you're playing hockey without the skates. You're either in boots or flat shoes. And there's a sponge puck instead of a rubber puck, which is safer, not only for the players, but for the spectators. And the only gear that the players use is a hockey stick. There's no pads. There's no helmets. So sort of like a do-it-yourself hockey. Yeah, pretty much. So the main concern with the thin ice is that people will fall through, correct? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Has that happened in the past? I believe last year I saw some videos, like not hugely concerning videos, but definitely videos of people breaking through the ice. But it was just like kind of close to the shore and nothing like hugely hazardous. I'm not aware of like whether there's been larger incidences relating to people breaking through the ice, but I mean, it does happen on lakes in Wisconsin. People break through all the time. What is a safe amount of ice to walk on? Pretty much every public safety source recommends at least four inches for a person. But when you take a big group of people, like what's going to happen on lilies, it's going to have to be more than four inches. Yeah, and I um, spoke to Adam Sumberstone from the um, Clean Lakes Alliance. They host a frozen assets festival um, that they had canceled last weekend from now when we're recording this. And he said that they look for eight inches. For a large group of people, that's a group of people who are acting more like a car than just like me and you walking on the lake. Is there anything that you learned over the course of your reporting that stuck out to you? I mean, I think that as goes with a lot of maybe sillier topics on surface level, it's about something a lot bigger. So like, sure, this is an article about SAE and how 
they don't really seem to have a good hold on managing this large event that they put on, whether that be like ensuring safety or having contingency plans or measuring the ice, you know, that didn't really seem to be in place from their angle is what I re- reporting uncovered. I don't think that's unfair to say. But I mean, it's also about like the fact that this is the January 15th was the first freeze date for Lake Mendota. And that was the third latest in like 170 years. So the, the effects of climate change are already here and it's impacting us in ways that we're not even thinking about including a huge party that people are not going to be able to attend this year. What time does the lake usually freeze? The median date is mid-December. So it was about a month later than we would typically expect in the last 170 years of data that the Office of Climatology has been taking. Yeah, last year it froze on December 25th, which I think is around average for when the lake freezes. Yeah. So this year was very late even compared to last year. Yeah, I mean, and I think we've all experienced that. Like, I personally left for winter break, and when I left, it was about 40 degrees. And then when I came back, it was cold for a weekend, and that now we're kind of back into that 30-degree range. We had a rainstorm yesterday, and it, this is February, you know. We all are aware that this isn't typical Wisconsin weather. Does it even seem possible to have it out on the lake? If it were a much, much smaller group, I would say it could be possible. But when you're putting, like... 100, 200 students out on the ice. I just don't think the university is going to allow that to happen. I think it's such a safety hazard. And honestly, no, I do not think, in my opinion, that it will be possible to have lilies this year. Does the school have the authority to shut down the event if it were to take place on the ice? I do know that the Office of Student Conduct has, um, and ASM has been trying to partner with lilies. I can't get into specific details in terms of how different forces within the university, including ASM, have been um, in communication over the year to try and make sure that the event is safe. I think yes would be the answer to that. Like, I think between UWPD and the statements that they've already made, they can say it is not safe for a large group of people to go on the ice and attempt to enforce that in some way. There was an opinion article by Paul O'Gorman about Lily's Classic published in the same issue of the paper as your article that suggested relocating to Langdon and playing street hockey. What solutions do you see to the problem faced by Sigma Alpha Epsilon hosting Lily's Classic? So I really liked their idea of making it street hockey because some of the a lot of the appeal to Lily's Classic is watching people battle off in a hockey tournament. And I think taking away the hockey aspect of it would really change the event. But I think by still making it somewhat hockey related, I think that would be really fun. And I also I do like the idea of having it on frat row that way the um, fraternity still has like responsibility for the event. That way they can still keep their eye on it. And I wonder if there's a way that they could like block off the street that Frat Row is on and make it almost like a block party similar to Mifflin. Obviously not as out of control, but I think it'd be fun to keep, you know, keep the hockey aspect, even if it's not on the ice. And as Kayla was saying about the hockey, that is how they do the fundraising. People pay per person to join in the hockey tournament. So I think as long as they're making sure that whatever way they evolve, the party still has a way to honor the people who are raising money for epilepsy research, like they should be happy with that decision that they're making. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on this week, Noe. Thanks for having us. And thanks for coming on this week, Kayla. Yeah, thank you so much. As a disclaimer for those not present at the start of the broadcast, as of February 11th, the boot hockey tournament has been canceled. SAE is still raising money for Lily's Fund, and there will be something in its place, according to the follow-up article published by Kyla.
In other campus news, a program allowing university athletics advisors to monitor the educational progress of student athletes has been raising eyebrows. One of the largest issues with this program, according to a student, is the ability of these advisors to see posts from students who didn't consent to the program. In other news, activist and actress Anna Devere Smith visited Memorial Union as part of the university's at Martin Luther King Jr. Symposium. She performed her retelling of King's letter from a Birmingham jail. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by UW-Madison student journalists. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, guest host Jason Joyce spoke with Will Ahovich, founder of an organization called Madison is for People. It's an organization that, according to Will, declares yes in my backyard. Well, instead of me trying and likely failing to, to categorize or define your organization, Madison is for People, it'd be great to have the founder tell us what you're all about. What what, is, what does your group do? Yes, Madison is for People is a YIMBY group, and that stands for Yes in My Backyard. We're essentially a housing advocacy group. And so what we're looking to do is make it easier to build housing throughout Madison, um, really everywhere. It's a nationwide movement, but Madison is for people is obviously specific to Madison. Yeah. You know, I got started in this because I was a young professional and I was renting. I still rent, but I was looking for a house and I was wondering, you know, why is it so expensive to buy a house in Madison? Um, You know, it sometimes feels like your only options are like big apartment buildings or like the suburbs with a big home with a big yard. And, you know, once I started looking into it, you find out about things like zoning and parking minimums and setbacks and all of these other requirements that really define what you are able to buy and choose. I saw a statistic the other day that in in 1980, 40% of homes were starter homes, Mm -hmm. you know, less than 1400 square feet. And now it's less than 7%. You know, most single family homes have gotten bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to talk about moving into a house when you're a young person, it is very difficult. This is not myth, right? No, it's not a myth. And there's a very low vacancy rate in Madison, and that makes it incredibly difficult to find apartments, uh, makes it very expensive. And really what that low vacancy rate does is it, is it kind of gives all the power to landlords because they know if you say no to a price hike or to you know what they're offering you, they're going to find someone else who's going to do that because there are no other options. And so one of the things that we're really advocating for is is building more housing and building more housing because that helps lift the vacancy rate that helps makes shifts the power back towards renters back towards homeowners you know people who want to find that spot in madison for themselves you know madison is a growing city we have a lot of people moving here and we need places for those people to live what is standing in the way in your opinion from doing what you're talking about doing building more housing Yeah, I I think the biggest things are um, exclusionary zoning and parking mandates are two of the biggest things. So exclusionary zoning is zoning that says, you know, you can only build these sorts of things. And then the typical exclusionary zoning is single family homes. And there, there are all these other requirements. So it's not just that you have to build a single family home, but that you need a large lot, you know, 8000 square feet. Your home has to be set back pretty far. You know, you have to have a you're legally required to have a front and a backyard, even Mm. if you don't want that. And those sorts of requirements make it so that, you know, land in Madison can only be used for the most expensive form of housing, which is not luxury condos. It's actually single family homes. 
And so that makes everything really expensive and it makes it just really difficult to build those homes for people. So, you know, people hear a lot about the missing middle. We advocate for making it easier to build the missing middle. And so those are homes that are not, you know, they're in between single family homes and big apartment buildings. So it could be townhomes, which, you know, townhomes you cannot just build by right in most places in Madison. Okay. Could be duplexes, triplexes, small apartment buildings, courtyard cottages, you know, all of these sorts of like really nice ways to live that are just they're not allowed right now can you talk a little bit about that parking uh situation that you mentioned as well oh yeah parking mandates so these are requirements that uh you have to build a certain number of parking spaces based on some whatever you're doing in your building so you know typically it's like one or two parking spaces per bedroom or per residential unit and then for commercial space it might be based on the square footage Uh, What these do is they add cost and we were talking about this before, but uh, I think the pandemic really laid bare, like especially if you're in a two person household and one person works remotely or you can walk or bus to your job, like you might have two cars, but you really only use one of them. But a lot of times you are required to build two parking spaces or one parking space. Yeah. Uh, Madison has has removed parking minimums in a lot of the city, but not citywide. So as part of the TOD that they passed last year, they removed parking minimums near the BRT line. From what I've been hearing and from what other places have done, I've heard that removing parking minimums is a major step towards making housing more affordable. I, I think people underestimate how much parking costs. Like a structured sure. parking garage is like fifty to sixty thousand dollars. It's more if you put it underground, and fifty thousand dollars is a, a, a lot, lot of money. Um, it changes the economics of putting together one of these projects for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Development stories continue to pop up in the news and they almost always seem to have a similar headline, you know, proposal uh, on the table for for some part of the city, neighbors pushing back. You defined your organization as part of the YIMBY movement. Often the opponents of these projects are categorized as NIMBY, not in my backyard. Maybe they're folks who say, oh, yeah, Madison has a housing crisis. We need to build more buildings. We need more apartment buildings, more, uh, you know, more residential housing, but not here. Tell us a little bit about that tension and how your group navigates that. Yeah. I mean, this is something that comes up all the time. And, you know, I, I there's a news story from when Madison passed the zoning code 100 years ago and someone wanted to build a three unit building and someone showed up and they said, uh, you know, if you build this three unit building, it's going to cause half a million dollars in property damages huh. to the neighboring properties. And of course, you know, I'm sure that person did not have much of a basis for that, but this isn't a new thing at all. You know, part of what we do as part of our advocacy is really education as well. So like Madison is for people is made up of homeowners, renters, young, old, and there's a variety of reasons that people are involved in this from being concerned about climate change and the effects of urban sprawl and car dependent development to just being worried about their property taxes going up because of, you know, the rising cost of services. And one way to alleviate that is to build development. You know, there's a variety of reasons that people are opposed, but I think most of the time it's in our best interest to build these homes. And so I try and focus on the positive things. So, um, you know, for an apartment building, it could be that the people who work at your favorite restaurant or grocery store, they might live there. It might be that it makes your neighborhood more walkable if you get some mixed use development. Mm -hmm. You know, walkability is something that people, (laughs) people love it. It's a luxury, I think. Yeah, it's a luxury. People are willing to pay more for it. And if you can get that in your neighborhood, that's 
amazing. Like we should be building more walkable neighborhoods. And part of that is not just building the walkable places, but also you need the number of people nearby, the density to actually support businesses. Um, otherwise, those businesses are, are not going to do well and people aren't going to actually want to open them up. That was WORT guest host Jason Joyce talking with Will Ahovich of Madison is for People. To hear more of their conversation, visit our website at wortfm.org. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg outlines some learning opportunities in the wildlife rehabilitation field and shares some things she's learned at a recent conference. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk about some really great opportunities in the wildlife rehabilitation field. Things that we look forward to every year as rehabilitators might not be something that most people think about, but there are opportunities for people to learn. So I am thinking about this because of our recent Wisconsin Wildlife Rehabilitators Association conference that just happened here in Madison. It happens every year on an annual basis, typically in the February timeframe. And this is a time for rehabilitators and students and other interested people and also people in the wildlife fields that are in the agencies that we work for. So DNR, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS, some of those acronyms you may or may not know. But for people to get together and talk about wildlife topics, it's a network of sharing of information so that we can figure out, you know, who's doing what and maybe getting to get to know each other especially in our field when it's pretty niche and small. It's really nice to know who's in certain areas doing what kind of work and maybe even making connections for things like research. And rehabilitators can offer a ton of information to other agencies and to researchers, same as we might be looking for partners. We also had a veterinary seminar for the first time uh, as part of WWA for, well, many, many years. It was a great workshop that was put on by folks from the UW-Madison Special Species Program, which is the wildlife medicine program now. And that wildlife medicine program is a grant that was started a couple of years ago, helping to train new veterinarians and new veterinary students in the fields of wildlife medicine so that they get the chance to practice and get to learn from rehabilitators just like ourselves, because as a veterinarian, you don't often get very many opportunities to work with wild animals. So they had a workshop associated with this where it was specifically for veterinarians and veterinary professionals or vet techs. And then the following day was a series of conference lectures that we got to listen to. So one of those got me thinking, and it was a presentation by some staff at the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, talking about systems thinking and about how we need to kind of rethink our model of wildlife in North America. And one of the things that was brought up was something called the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, which I haven't talked about here on WORT yet. Now, the North American model of wildlife conservation is a, a type of policy or kind of like something that was brought up thinking about how we can maybe manage wildlife in the boundaries of what we call the United States or in Canada. And so I thought I'd just point out the principles and the principles of it are that one, wildlife resources are conserved and held in the trust for all citizens. It means that wildlife are in the public resources. It means that nobody owns wildlife. It is a shared thing. 
Commerce in dead wildlife is eliminated, meaning, you know, why trade it? And then wildlife is allocated according to democratic rule of law, meaning that we have uh, ways that we vote for people that maybe see our similar views on how to save the environment or wildlife in our area. The other is that wildlife may only be killed for legitimate non-frivolous purpose, meaning it's not just because it's, you know, something that is regulated. Wildlife is also an international resource, and every person has an equal opportunity under the law to participate in things like hunting or fishing, and scientific management is the proper means for wildlife conservation. So that is kind of how the model is, but there are ways to rethink that, especially as wildlife rehabilitators are getting together, networking again at these types of conferences, trying to think about different ways that we can help wildlife in other ways because hunting is not the only way to conserve wild animals. So the model is very specifically kind of built around that type of mindset because it is something that was brought forward a very long time ago where now hunting practices have kind of started to decline actually in our area. So although the law is in place to help save wildlife, some of it through, you know, permits and purchasing for hunting through, you know, the DNR, helping to fund wildlife services, it doesn't mean that it is going to be profitable enough for everyone and not everyone is interested in hunting or fishing or some of that sport. So listening to that, that's where I thought, oh, you know, talking about different opportunities for people to think about wildlife, get involved, Conferences are these great opportunities to do that and to learn more about what we're doing in the community. There's also an upcoming national conference that will be uh, held here at the end of February, early March. This year it's in Nebraska, but the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association holds their symposium once a year in a different area. So uh, many of our staff at the Humane Society will be going there to learn, and it'll be a week-long type of opportunity to learn about wildlife rehabilitation topics and to participate in workshops and field trips. It's really, really cool. So if you're thinking about learning, you want to try some really cool opportunity. Both of these options, although they're for rehabilitators, do not require you to be a rehabilitator. It is something that's more open access. And I think it's great for people who think maybe they might want to steer in this career or just get more information or just learn, especially lifetime learners. Think about registering for those types of events. The International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council is another great one, although the symposium or conference that they hold uh, is not always uh, going to be as regular or hasn't been for a number of years, but still incredible resources for training and workshops that they hold. So those are the three that I wanted to highlight in this radio segment today. And then also just to highlight that, you know, there's a lot of diversity in people working in wildlife meaning they're working in the arena, but they might be doing something totally different. Maybe they're a vet, maybe a rehabber, maybe a conservation warden, maybe law enforcement. All those folks need to come together somehow, and conferences are one way that we can do this. You know, on my uh, soapbox here today at WORD about how to get involved into, you know, some of these agencies or getting to network if you're thinking about it or you just want to get to know more, I highly encourage looking up any of the opportunities through WWRA, NWRA, IWRC, or check us out at the Humane Society's website at giveshelter.org. So thanks for listening today about some wildlife conservation topics and the North American model. And if you have any questions about wildlife, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Your reporter was Lila Grubb. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Oliver Gerhartz, 
Jason Joyce and Mike Moen. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you keep up with your favorite podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Nuestro Patio. Good night.